Welcome to Going Off Track. Hi. How are you, Jonah? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Mellow. I'm getting ready to cap my summer off with one last trip. Yeah, where are you, uh, where are you head, Brad? I'm going to a very classic Adirondack um, campground, like cabin campground type place. I've never been there. It looks cool. It's on Trout Lake. Okay. If you really want to know. Um, do you enjoy these family excursions? Because I'm trying to remember, like, Ugh. as a kid, like, I felt like <laughs> part of me, like, sort of liked it once I got out there. But then part of me was like, I just want to be home hanging out with my friends. I mean, is it the same for you? Or are you like, I wish I was... Well, there's no vacation talk- when you have kids. That's oh, yeah, like, I guess that's This true. is what every parent learns right away. There's just no, like, there's nothing. I mean... You know, and then and then they'll be teenagers at some point, and they won't want to have anything to do with me, and then I'll be bummed, I guess. Right, right. So I try to remember that, you know, like at like six in the morning when my five year old comes in and jumps on my head, that like I'll miss that. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. But um, I think I think this will be cool. I mean, my mom lives up there, but she's selling her house, so we can't stay in her house because it's all like under renovation or something. So this is nearby where she lives. Okay, cool. But I'm kind of psyched because it's it looks really classic, like total old school, like cabin, lake, like. So what are you boating. gonna do? Like, you do you have a plan, or you just sort of get up there and you're like, yeah, just get up there and hang out, man. Yeah, kids will, kids will swim. We'll do a little boating. Yeah, maybe I'll bring uh, some fishing gear. Yeah, that sounds relaxing. Try and nail bass. <laughs> um. I also wanted to say, Brad, uh, thank you to Brad. Brad came out to see uh, my show the other night. It was pretty good, man. Yeah, thank you. We did a season series finale at the Bell House. I didn't actually see Brad, but I heard he was in the audience. <laughs> I was really actually there for the whole thing. And yeah. at the end, I almost thought of hanging out. You could have grabbed me hi. or texted me or something. But also, like, know, what's, but it's also know. like you see me all the time. What's yeah. the point of being like, I'm going to be home a half hour later just so I can be like, hey, who's <laughs> really here? Yeah. I, I knew I knew that I didn't have that you would yeah. believe me. I mean, I, yeah. If I said I was really there for the whole time, when I was. Um, but yeah, it was a great. It was a really fun night. Um, Laura Stevenson. She was great. She was great. She did the Blossom Blossom theme song for us. I gotta say that former going off track guest. I don't. I probably have never seen one Blossom episode ever. And you know, if I did, it was probably intoxicated. Yeah. <laughs> You did not strike me because that time period was kind of. Uh, I think I was drunk during that decade. Yeah. It would have been very weird <laughs> if you were like, "Oh, I'm like a Blossom super fan." I was like spinning at Niagara, somewhere with the goofs, and then I'd get home and just watch a, yeah, no. teenage girls in a pretty sitcom. much no. It was not on my radar. Dude. Yeah, I get that. But uh, I will. But some of those other shows, I'm a little more aware of that. I'd like to check out. Well, ironically, the same era as Blossom was uh, when I was uh, listening to this next band. Oh, yeah. This next guest, excuse me, uh, Dave Perner today on the podcast, frontman for Soul Asylum. Yeah, it's very, uh, yeah, interesting. And I think, We yeah, did that by accident. That we did that by segue. accident. <laughs> yes, that was an accidental segue. Because I feel like, yeah, Brave Dancers Union, I remember I bought that album in a CD long box. Yeah, man. So late, that late had 80s, to have been, early 90s. Yeah, that had to have been. There. I mean, uh, Soul Asylum's been going the whole time, don't get me wrong, but I feel yes. like that was definitely a strong period for the band. That's certainly when I was listening to them. Yeah, and we we talk about that in the podcast. Yeah, um, Dave, Dave's, I got an email. Soul Asylum, we're coming through town, and uh, it was able to set up this interview with Dave. And uh, yeah, obviously we talked about Minneapolis a lot, the replacements. We talked about his mu- music supervision stuff. We talked about how he has a studio now in New Orleans. 
feel like we kind of warmed him up and we should get him back again. Yeah, I would love to have him back here. He's like, these are the kind of guests I'm really into. And it's like someone I like was so like enamored with growing up. And then I'm like, oh, you can sit here and I can just like ask you stuff for an hour. <laughs> this is so cool. Um, so yeah, that was really cool um, for Dave to come by. And I think it's kind of a different, little different vibe. Definitely. So I'm going to stop talking about it. So that you can enjoy it. So you can enjoy uh, Dave Perner from Soul Asylum on Going Off Track. Brad's here, yay. That's the old um, school desk. Yeah, we got a nice setup here. You you own a recording studio in New Orleans, I, is that? I do. I have a studio in, well, we tried to run a commercial studio, but now I just have a home studio in my backyard in New Orleans that I actually built and designed the building myself. And then I have a little studio in the basement up in Minneapolis. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I've kind of figured out how to do it all by myself, which is pretty handy when it's part of the process of making a record. And you can use some of the ideas as you're making them so you don't lose any of the spontaneity. And it's it's very different than 20 years ago when we go to New York or L.A. and spend $800,000 <laughs> making a record, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's very cool. As long as you Brad, keep this. Brad helped design the studio you're in. Yes, and Brad was also in a major on a major label back then too. This isn't about me. Oh yeah, sorry. It's about <laughs> me. I, I suddenly got really interested. <laughs> um, yeah, that's why. Dude, I mean, no, wait a minute. Hold on. We got it, Brad. No, this is important. Okay, Brad's band no... was on the Mallrat soundtrack. Ah, <laughs> now we've got something in common. <laughs> I don't think I was on the mall red. <laughs> yeah, I was. No, you were on Clerks, but you, yeah. you scored a bunch. Clerks you did Chasing one Amy and, and other stuff, right? Yep, Clerks 1, Chasing Amy, and Clerks 2. And I think there's, they make an, they, they use a tune from Chasing Amy and, God, I it's like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck look at the camera and there's a tune from Chasing Amy. They make a reference to yeah, it's all very... Uh, oh, that's cool. It has I shows mean, some sort of strange continuity between the the characters and stuff. Chasing Amy and Clerks 1, that's respectable. Um, yeah, I love working with Kevin. He's great. Yeah. It was, yeah he was in like, your music video, right, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, have you... Uh, Man, this is so wild. I mean, what what do you think about like when you talk about when you think about recording those super eight hundred thousand dollar records in New York like during that period? What do you think about when you think about that era? Because it's so different now. I guess. Did you like it? Did it feel uncomfortable? No, I mean, at first it was like a crash course and just understanding how people make records. And I think at the time, you know, there everybody kind of made records the same way you know you'd go spend a lot of time and a lot of money in a studio and stay in that studio until you got it right and uh that's very different now i mean i look i look back on it very fondly because i learned how to make records and now i can kind of do it by myself and i learned from the finest i got to work with all these great producers and great engineers and work in all these great studios and 
eventually you kind of absorb it. You kind of like, oh, you recognize all the microphones, and you, I still kind of, I, I still struggle a little bit with the oh, that's a C thirty seven, and that's a U forty eight, and that's a. It's like trying to remember Symphony Number no. Nine and like <laughs> classical music without titles. You know, you're looking at, but uh, yeah, and over time. I think the trickiest thing or the thing that some people are really good at and other people aren't so much is to be able to look at a piece of equipment and understand exactly what it does. So like it took me a long time to figure out things like compression and right. you know reverb you can kind of get that one pretty quickly, <laughs> you know. Well, you probably I mean the most important thing is you probably learned to listen, you know, because the truth is Oh, absolutely. It doesn't matter if you're on you're absolutely right. a million dollars worth of gear or mm-hmm. like $5,000 worth of gear. You can, if your ears work, you can get, yeah. you know, and especially now if you're doing a lot of this stuff yourself, like, oh yeah, that's the hardest part. You were paying, you know, you were paying a guy to listen to yep. make sure that everything sounded just right. go sing and sing and sing and sing and then I'd go, I'm going to the bar. And then they'd <laughs> go through it all and try to figure out what what they liked. And yeah, I did kind of, I'm forced to listen to myself a lot more now. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just as good as anyone, I suppose, at trying to figure out when I'm sounding good and when I'm not. And I think, sure, when I was coming up, I just had no idea what I was doing. Right. I didn't, I hadn't, I mean, if I listen to my first record, I barely am knowing how to sing. It's very punk rock and a, I'm just yelling. <laughs> I'm just yelling about everything. Yeah, I mean, your, I th- your your band, like for me, was it was part of a, a like a very almost seminal punk rock point in my life because it was your sometime to return was the first video I ever saw in 120 minutes. Oh, nice! And I remember it specifically, and it was one of those you know your teenager, your ears haven't been around the planet that long, you're just figuring mm. out your sound, and it was that you know that whiplash shotgun effect of the fuck is that that's awesome nice and, you know hadn't heard it and it just kind of blew my mind it's definitely the desired effect <laughs> yeah i just i just i've spent all morning like going through all the youtube videos being like oh my god i remember that and it's funny because all the videos are you know squished into like oh yeah 14. <laughs> yeah I mean, did you have a favorite producer you worked with on some of those so early records? It's so strange how videos were such an integral part of things for a while. So, and yeah. it's so hard to like even set, like when I, like even like Runaway Train or something, when I think about the song, uh, you think I about have, the video. I talk about that all the time. I'm like, well, the video came second, so the song's not really about what the video is about. Right, that, right. That sort of thing. Um, do I have a favorite producer? Mm-hmm. Um I think I I think that they all have something different to offer and like Steve Jordan who plays drums with nice. Keith Richards and stuff he really really sort of taught the band a lot about playing together in the studio um someone like Michael Beinhorn really taught me how to listen like he's super sound sensitive and stuff and you know Butch Vig t- sort of brought something else to the picture and you realized how many people these different producers have worked with and they're kind of you know they're picking up everything from everybody they work with too so yeah it'd be hard to pick a favorite but uh it's a great uh luxury and i guess i'd have to say john fields is my favorite producer to work with because he's done my last three records and it's very uh 
very fluid. He can sit at the control board and play bass, and me and Michael and him will sort of put together the skeleton for the tracks. And uh, yeah, he's really he's really fast, and that's what's important to me now. I just need to I need to move really fast and. We would spend a lot of time just sitting around in the studio forever waiting to get a drum sound or this, that, or the other thing. And it would just take days. And it would take days for us to get a track finished because we weren't very good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what do you sort of think it is about, like, obviously Minneapolis, like, you know, Replacements, Husker Du, all these, like, kind of amazing bands kind of came out of that area you know, a little before you, during you, after. I mean, what do you think it is about about Minneapolis that's had this kind of amazing music kind of history? I mean, honestly, I think the long winters have a lot to do with it. And you get, I mean, when I think about how much time Prince spent in his basement by himself trying to figure out how, you know, the four-track recorder works and how you can do all this stuff and play all the instruments yourself... It's really kind of the mother invention uh, kind of a thing. You're just, you're kind of stuck in a someplace for five months right. and there's really nothing, you can't go outside and stuff. And that's, that's, so many bands just kind of got started out in their mom's basements or whatever. And uh, yeah, then springtime comes and you move it out to the garage. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think that that has a lot to do with it. And uh you know, I always run where I kind of romantically associate it with the Mississippi River and what a what a musical waterway that is. And it goes down through Nashville and Memphis. And now I've been living in New Orleans for 15 years. So I don't know. We we we, uh, we talk about the flyover zone because we think that that's funny that people on the East Coast and West Coast <laughs> consider these great music towns to be just someplace between the East Coast and the West Coast. Where a bunch of hicks live, or something. Yeah, I'm from Cleveland, so I know how it goes. <laughs> I mean, I think Phil- those bands, Phil- a lot of those. The thing that I loved about, especially the Minneapolis bands from that era, and I would even include Prince in this, but is that a lot of the other kind of like seminal punk bands that came out of the '80s from the coasts, you could always tell their their influences, you know. And I feel like like you guys, Replacements, like Husker Du, like. It wasn't so obvious. It's it just the sounds were a little bit. I mean, once you kind of dig into it, you can see, you can hear. Mm-hmm. It, but like for what was actually happening and what was cool at the time on the coasts, you guys weren't really following those rules. And no. like as a result, these bands have a lot fresher sound than the bands that I would think of coming out of like the East Coast or West Coast during the same time period. Yeah, it's probably pretty. It's hard to associate the East and, and the West and what's happening in the Midwest. We, When I was coming up, each band had this... Uh, everybody wanted to be really different than the next band. So you had oh, okay. this real kind of angular kind of artistic license. And sometimes it seemed like performance art. Sometimes it was like, you know, the singer couldn't necessarily sing and... It's just kind of trying to be different than the next band. And all these bands had a really unique sound amongst themselves. And, uh, yeah, we weren't really paying attention to trying to 
keep up with whatever right. other bands were doing. It was it was actually very sort of insul- insular. Is that the right? Yeah, insular, right? Um, thank you. <laughs> Jonah's a writer. I'm a writer. So, so, yeah. yeah, thanks. Man. Perfect I, usage. I, I have that a lot. But I mean, and the, I mean, obviously, the local scene supported it, which is the that's you know that's the essence of it. That's what's, yeah, that that's was why it the happened. beauty of it, and that's what I end up recalling is that you had maybe 15 20 bands and you'd all play the same two clubs and you'd look out in the crowd and two-thirds of the audience would be people in bands right so they you know we'd come and support each other and stuff and it was nice it was really nice yeah i, so, like, I look back on so it then fondly. i gotta ask is it is it really you on kids don't follow yelling at the that's cops that's me i mean i'm 99.9 <laughs> <laughs> sure that's me i was standing Apparently, right by the microphone, which I did not know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, me and a couple other friends were just yelling the word, the f word. So was that f bomb? That was before you. You were just a kid, <laughs> right? It was before you had your own band, probably. Yeah, uh, we were we were off and running at that oh, point. Um, the band that I had when the replacements first record came out was called the shits can i say that yes please and say uh, it again <laughs> shits <laughs> and uh yeah so by the time by the time stink came out i think i i had yes i had moved on to soul asylum oh, which okay. was called loud fast rules at the time i'm pretty sure and uh yeah we were at every single thing that any warehouse party or whatever it was it was six nights a week i was out seeing bands yeah it was great i mean yeah it's a small scene right i mean like you said Mm -hmm. two clubs and And there's a you know there's enough of a music scene that a lot of bands from out of town come through and it was kind of cool in that way you know they you let them stay at your house when they're in minneapolis and then you go to their city and you get to sleep on their right. scabies infested couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's eternal. <laughs> what was it sort of like, I mean, coming from that world? I mean, because I guess I feel like a lot of people might not realize who like found you guys through Grave Dancers Union and sort of follow you since how long you guys were a band before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it like sort of like transitioning from that kind of such a small kind of world into like having so much attention on you? I mean, because I'd imagine that would be kind of strange. It was. I mean, I kind of associate it with the beer uh, with the beer caught in the headlights. I meant to say deer, but it was more of a beer caught. Beer in the sounds headlights. better. Yeah, we got it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but it was super slow and gradual for us. I mean, so we you know had been together for ten years and got a deal with Twin Tone, our local indie label, and then A&M kind of merged with Twin Tone, and we slowly moved into being part of the alternative department at A&M, which meant alternative to what they knew how to promote. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so it all did go really, really slow, and to that effect, it was a gradual build. But by the time the shit hit the fans as they say um you know then it just turned into a whirlwind then i you know it was just constant traveling and photo shoots and craziness that was pretty hard to appreciate as far as there was no time to sit around and pat ourselves on the back and go whoa whoa we made it man it was just like what's going on you know and just trying to keep up with 
people pushing you around and telling you where to go and you know i ain't complaining <laughs> <laughs> is that where you got the idea for the misery video all the, get pushed around the factory kind of idea. Yeah, I think probably. Yeah, I think at that point I was just like, "Wow, we're just gonna start cranking this out because there's all suddenly you know, all this demand for more music." And uh, yeah, I think that's around the time other artists go get other songwriters because they want to just keep cranking stuff out while their bands, their, their name is hot or whatever. But uh, yeah, that wasn't really part of what we were doing. And that was the nice thing about coming to Columbia is that we had already established ourselves as a band with a grassroots following or fan base or whatever you want to call it. So they didn't really have anything to say to us as far as what they thought we should do. And that was pretty great. It was liberating in a way that they said, here's the keys to the studio and you can have whatever producer you want. But you just do whatever it is that you do because we're not sure we even understand it. And and yeah, that's how that's how Grave Dancers Union kind of came together. So it was all kind of demoed and stuff before we got signed to Columbia and then we just had to record it right. And that's probably yeah, Michael Beinhorn spends tons of money and uses all the best equipment and it was harrowing as far as how much he needed to get it just right and just make it do it over and over and over and over and over and over again but uh once again that's kind of how you learn you know and that was just like completely the opposite of how you'd done the previous record i mean well yeah it was because when we made our second and last a&m record we did it with steve jordan and uh he was all about getting the band in a giant soundstage and recording us live. Right. And uh, what record is that? And you can hear it. It's called "The Horse They Rode right, In On." Right. And uh, two different covers. Just want to throw that in there. It was very frustrating to find both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gene. You know, now that I think of it, we might have been the first people to really go. Oh, here you can have this version or that version or this cover, different artwork and all that. Yeah, it was. It was it was a play on a Volkswagen ad, Farfanugan. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and so did that like piecemeal, like just like take after take. Did you guys? Did it, did it drive you nuts? Did you feel like you could deal with it? Did you? Just well, step up? I mean, it 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 affected the tracks in a way that my drummer got replaced, which was traumatic and dramatic, <laughs> and I couldn't. I couldn't process it, and my drummer couldn't process it. And then this gentleman by the name of Sterling Campbell came in and played drums on a song, and it just changed my whole perception of what was possible. And I heard somebody playing drums on one of my songs that's a really, really, really good drummer. And he went off to play with David Bowie. And uh, I just remember bringing home a song from the studio, and just I started sobbing because I was just like, God, that's what my music has been missing all this time. And it just opened it all up for me. And I, I, now I know. And yeah, it's amazing that's what why I have Michael, the right drummer can do. Yeah, man. You're only as good as your drummer. I mean, people <laughs> say that, and sad, I think it's true, you know. It's totally true. It's true. Yes. I mean, when you were sort of going into that record um, with Columbia and you had that freedom, I mean, did you know, were you like, man, these songs are 
these could be like big songs where you're like, oh, it's just like another record. This is cool. Like, did you have a feeling? I didn't. I mean, I knew that I had made something really different because I started playing the acoustic guitar quite a bit at that time. And uh, that was a different kind of an angle for us. Before that, it was all very electric and very loud and very fast. And, uh, and I wrote a bunch of songs on the acoustic guitar. And I sh came out to Manhattan and I shopped them around. I remember going to Geffen and the guy going, so you're trying to make a down record. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, and I guess that just means acoustic or not you know, obnoxious or something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I got, re I got good responses from those demos and Runaway Train was like, I don't know, the fourth song on the tape, the cassette tape. And that, and I hadn't even, you know, if I was smart, it would have been the first song because, <laughs> you know, I just, I really didn't know what, what we had as far as, uh, the potential for, for that music. But the demos are, are kind of interesting. We just... All of a sudden, just went into the practice space with a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and played acoustic guitars, which was a whole different thing for us at the time. I also think it's interesting, specifically Runaway Train, like considering how sort of young you were writing that stuff. Like it, it is, it's like so dark. I mean, like I feel you know talking about like getting jaded and sort of like mm. a mystery. I mean, did you feel like you were in kind of a dark place back then, or was I was? in the darkest place <laughs> i was like i think really experiencing what they call clinical depression for the first time and uh yeah i was kind of yeah, i was in a really strange place i i sort of convinced myself that i was losing my hearing and then i was losing my mind and then i was you know i was going through sort of a spiral and uh that's probably what you're talking about and you wouldn't necessarily think that people were gonna identify with that but there's there's something to it i think you know everybody gets sad or whatever it's just one of those things where i never wanted to write music about dancing and screwing and stuff like that so there's a lot of other things to write songs about <laughs> how did you sort of get through get through that was it well, I think that before that, I was really thinking about hanging it up. I was just like, oh, we're done with our A&M thing, or it's not working out, or whatever, and I've gone as far as I can go with it, and I'm just, I suck. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure that the uh, the way the record came out had quite a bit to do with, like, all of a sudden, I was just busy working all the time, and uh, that'll take your mind off your your own self pity and stuff. You know, few fashion photo shoots makes you feel a little <laughs> bit like you must be important or something. That's always good. For I, have a, I have a question about Runaway Train. Um, uh, the the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where they sing that. Uh huh. Are you familiar with that one? <laughs> I, you know what? I have, I think maybe somebody showed it to me briefly on their phone, but um, people have asked me about it, and people always 
are uh, positive about it. So, I, it's very, it's yeah. very, very funny, and it's it's done. <laughs> oh yeah, that, somebody was just explaining it to me, and now I remember. I have not seen it, but now I kind of know what happens. It's one of those things where it was completely unexpected. And you're like, oh, that's good. Oh, crap. That's really funny. And my first thought is always like, did they get paid for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you do get paid for that. And it's oh, uh, good. It's just I'm knocking on wood when I'm saying this. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. If, uh, but I think, I don't know if I should say this. I don't want to jinx myself, but I think I got to song in an episode of family guy and i'm i'm pretty excited about wow, that wow nice. that's cool that's amazing but you yeah. know enough about runaway train can we talk about put the bone in because that was we my can record talk about <laughs> hang time was that was my soul asylum record did, did you that, get the oh bone God, us track yeah <laughs> cd only right right that's when you when you when they first came out with the cd and you had to put bonus material on the cd to get people to buy cds instead of lps and it's funny how times have changed, you know. It's a good song, anyway. I think it's uh, it's Terry Jacks, and it's the B-side of Seasons in the Sun. And what? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And we were here in New York recording Hang Wait, Time. Wait, he, with the same lyrics? That's what was on the flip side of Seasons in the Sun? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a bar on St. <clears throat> Christopher Place, and God, we used to go there all the time, and it's slipping my mind right on now. St. Mark's on St. Mark's. Yeah. It was called the blue, blue and gold, the blue and gold. Go down a couple steps. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Real that's, dive. Yeah. Real dive. And that's where we would always go. And they had that 45 in the jukebox and we just saw the title and thought it was funny no. and we put it on and it just became our song. I can't believe that. I didn't we know that story. We were all just laughing like that is the funniest song. And before I knew it, we we're in the studio with yeah. a couple beers, and the producer was playing piano, and everybody was switching instruments, and we kind of cut it live, and it's Ew, it's a yeah. hilarious song, oh, and it's, it's so... almost as twisted as Seasons <laughs> in the Sun, maybe more twisted. Do you know this? Do you know the song, Stephen? Mm-hmm. Put the, the bone in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I do not know this. It's song. A, it's a, it takes place at a butcher store. Okay, <laughs> dude. I, I she have to take a bone home for a dog. <laughs> oh, I had it. I, but you know, I, I, I had the hang time long box. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Remember long those? Ah, yeah. the old long box. <laughs> I definitely. Yeah, I had. I had a Grave Dancers Union long box for sure. I had yeah. That, yeah. Those. Yeah, I forgot about those. I haven't. For me, Grave for Dancers me on that record, it's cartoon. That's mini my, disc. Cartoon. When you were opening for Cheap Trick, I was the guy in like one of the early rows who just was incessantly Hang shouting time. it, knowing full well if you're not going to not on the set list, you're not going to play it. But I couldn't help myself. <laughs> have you the Have you like um, done sort of more stuff for TV or like do you sort of like doing the composing stuff for outside of just records and that type of stuff? Uh, or is that newer? I don't really. get nearly enough of that kind of work. I mean, I've produced records for other artists. And, uh, <clears throat> like I said, the Kevin Smith gig was really, really fun. I really enjoyed scoring Chasing Amy. And I kind of concluded that if I was going to try to pursue work like that, it's best to be in L.A. or You know, New York. But mostly L.A. Like, because I, <clears throat> excuse me, got the Chasing Amy gig. I ran into Harvey Weinstein at a party. And he goes, oh, Kevin Smith's making a new movie. Would you like to score it? 
And I said, yes. And he <laughs> goes, all right, well, I'll get back to you on that. And I thought it was just party talk. I thought it was BS. Yeah. I was just like, whatever. And sure enough, next morning I get a call from his office and uh, I was on my way. And it just, That's I don't know, if I hadn't have been at that party, I probably maybe wouldn't have got right the Right place, so right time, man. I think you really got to be out there and it's you got to be working it and you got to be networking and you got to do all that stuff because it's, it's really good work if you can get it. <clears throat> and it's like I took a film scoring class through ASCAP and uh, I, got, I got into the class through the back door because I was having success as an ASCAP artist. So they let me take this class. And the first day of the class, the the teacher goes, well, how many of you people have conducted an orchestra? And everybody's hand went up except mine. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, God, now I'm in big trouble. You yeah. know? And we'd do these things where you'd conduct, uh, you'd be looking at a screen with a cartoon, and then you'd have a piano player looking at you, and you'd have a clock going, and then you'd have a click track going, and you had to score, you had to guide the piano player through the animation and uh sure enough they people are just saying stuff to me like oh you must be in a rock band i'm like <laughs> how can you tell he's like because your timing is really good and i was like well, oh, really? i had no idea you know but uh yeah that experience of of being in the studio with 120 people in an orchestra and a movie on screen and it's all syncing up and they're playing to picture it's really pretty incredible dude it's crazy so it's, that was the first film you ever scored wow. was for kevin smith that was well yeah i mean i scored a couple quote unquote student films before yeah. that and short films and things like that what was that experience like i mean which one <laughs> i guess chasing amy i mean like was he very hands-on would he give you a lot of direction or was uh, it more like dave kind of do your thing yeah, I mean, he, they do a temp score, so they they just put in random music that they're not going to use in the movie, but that that tells you where they want music, and it might tell you what kind of thing they're thinking about, but that's where you go, I'm not going to listen to it. I just want to know where the music is supposed to be, and I don't want to hear what whoever stuck the temp score in there did, because I want to react to it on a spontaneous level and uh it really was cool it really felt like i was choreographing the music to the movement of the actors and and uh i did it in a garage in california with bonnie Raitt's guitar player who just had kind of a home studio in his garage and kevin would come over and sit down and watch and you know usually he was pretty cool with what i was doing and then like the last day of it we were in the in the big real movie studio where they're doing all the finishing touches and making sure the edits are right and the volume is right and stuff and there was a scene towards the end of the movie and he was very very coy about sort of saying well i don't i don't think that there should be music right there and i was like okay and he goes is that okay <laughs> and, I, and I just looked at it and I went, it's your movie, man. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. So how did you end up in New Orleans instead of Los Angeles? Because I'm sure that you had a lot of friends out there and obviously you could have kind of done that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, I never got much of a feel for 
the neighborhoods in Los Angeles. I was always kind of in a place where I had to have a car and you had to drive everywhere and this, that, and the other thing. And I, I'm kind of a walking town kind of a person. Yeah. So I had spent a couple, three years here in New York and a couple, three years in L.A. and going back and forth. And I, you know, I got kind of spoiled by all the culture and all the f- food and the music and the art and whatever. And uh, at that point, I had sort of gotten a place in Minneapolis. I didn't really know where I wanted to be, but I was spending a lot of time in New Orleans. And that was all because of the music. So I started going to Jazz Fest and realizing that the great musicians were local musicians. And I just said, I got to be here. You know, I want to be in this place because the music is is incredible. And to that effect, it had enough culture for me, enough people from all over the world and enough eclectic kind of food and dancing and music that New Orleans seemed kind of like a, a tinier version of what Manhattan might be like for a, a small town boy such as myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's what's the status with um, Soul Salve now? It's you, the one remaining but, but, the whole band? Where you at, right? you're, you're cutting <laughs> oh, off. Steven, you're turning into a robot. You're, right? ah. you're, you're sketching. You're sketching. <laughs> you're glitching. You're glitching. How about now? Is that better? No, I can... I, can, I, th- I we think we can hear your I voice. Think Stephen was, I think Stephen was... I, w- I was asking about the... Because I read a, a press release and you were saying how the lineup now you're, you think is so strong. I mean, you've uh-huh. had... A, I know the drummer's been in for a while, but yeah. you have a couple new guys as well? Relatively, uh, last few years? Winston Roy and Michael Bland, the bass player and drummer, prospectively, have been with me for quite some time. Michael's, I think, 10, 11, going on something. So that language is very established, and Michael has gone through the entire catalog and picked out things from way back. And when Michael plays the songs from back then, they they get a whole new life to them, and uh, that's really exciting. Um, my bass player died and guitar player quit. Um, so yeah, it's been more of a hand picked kind of thing where you find a player that, I mean, I saw Winston playing at something called Summerfest, which is a Wisconsin festival and Carl had passed and Tommy Stinson from the replacements was playing bass. And, uh, you know, once Tommy stepped in, I was like, okay, we're going to keep going because Carl loved Tommy and Tommy's great. And then when Axel called for Tommy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I saw Winston playing at this festival and went, there he is. That's the guy. That's the guy I need. And Michael just called him right up and he joined right up. And yeah, I'm, I love playing with this band it's it's just there's no we used to walk off the stage and half the time we'd go god that was just awful like we really screwed the pooch on that gig and uh when your rhythm section is that solid you you got nobody to blame but yourself but you usually it's it's almost always a solid performance as far as how it feels anyways right what was that conversation like when Tommy was like, hey, man, so I got this other gig, this guy, Axel, about Guns N' Roses. I mean, was that... Because even when I heard that, I was like, yeah. wow, to all the people, I would never have... 
You know, I mean, the thing is that he was doing that before he joined up with okay. Soul Asylum, so we kind of knew that he was on uh, gotcha. on call, so to speak. <laughs> um, when Sterling left to go play with David Bowie, it was one of those things where you can't go, dude, that's, that's you're an idiot. I can't <laughs> believe you'd want to go play with the, that David instead of this David, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bowie. Yeah, I think I would take a Bowie gig. Be tough. Turn down. Maybe. Uh, Dave, I, I, can you hear me now? Are we good? Sort of. Just let's okay. let's try it. I can always repeat it if. Okay. Um, is it is it true? there's uh, music in Princess Vault with you all? That is what I understand, and uh, people keep asking me about it, and the more details people pick up, like, like my brother texted me and he goes you've got all this stuff in the secret vault and i'm like i guess it isn't secret anymore <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean and it's crazy to me that i guess they they had to like break into his vault you know they had to but uh yeah there's a lot of stuff with my name on it and i have no idea what it is <laughs> i know that he covered one of my songs because michael my drummer played on it and and that was a real kick. Like he asked Michael for my blessing to cover one of my songs, and I just thought that was really charming. I'm like, go for it, Prince. Man. <laughs> but again, I don't know if any of that stuff will see the light of day. And we worked a lot at Paisley Park, so I don't know if he was cutting things together or or I don't. Yeah, was it? Pretty- I'm curious to know what it is. Wow. But I just don't, is it tapes, master tapes? I, is yeah, it it's master tapes that have my name on them, and I don't, I don't know what it is, <laughs> and I don't know, you know, I wouldn't even know who to ask or how to. I mean, you know, maybe after time passes, they'll try to f- decipher what what's. But there's just, I mean, he recorded so many things and made movies and things like that that never saw the light of day. Right. And was always making videos that were unfinished or whatever. And if you if you watch the Kevin Smith thing, it's have you seen the? No. It's like no. He, he's doing it. A, out? Kevin's doing an interview at uh, uh, some college. He he does the college circuit. Right. Oh, I've seen this, yes. Somebody, mm-hmm. yeah, you've seen it? And they, yeah. they ask him about his Paisley Park, his Prince experience. And as bizarre as it sounds, it, it it's, gives you a pretty good feel of what it's like out there. It's just his, it's it's his magic kingdom right. or something, hey. man. Oh, maybe this does sound familiar. He, yeah, some kind of like he's asking for elephants Prince asked or him something. to do a documentary. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. was it? What was it like, kind of working over there? Was it pretty casual? You guys just kind of like mm. <laughs> casual's not the word. Casual is not the word. <laughs> it really isn't. It it had like a very like almost a hospital feel to it. It was really clean and you know not particularly warm, and things were very white and monochromatic and. Yeah, there was three studios, so there was there was always something cool kind of going on. We kind of come in and we take our room and you move from room to room depending on which one is open. And it never happened to me, but apparently if Prince felt like he needed one of the rooms, he'd just kick whoever was in there out <laughs> and start working in the room. That's what I've been told anyways. 
but I'd run into him in the hallway all the time and stuff like that. And you'd see the you'd see a chef crying because Prince didn't like whatever she made for him <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> it was it was kind of it was interesting. It really was his uh, palace. His uh, you know what's the the green castle in the Wizard of Oz or whatever Emerald City Emerald yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I got the nerd stuff here, <laughs> Dave. I have, I have a question for you. How do you how do you separate? Um, uh, I don't know. You know how like Bob Pollard has all these million bands and then Guided by Voices. You know, you've done solo stuff as Dave Perner and Soul Asylum. So, mm-hmm. how do you know what's a solo song or a Soul Asylum song? Well, I don't really. Um, I just keep writing and I just keep recording and I just keep doing stuff and. Even when I started making this last Soul Asylum record, we were kind of uncertain as to what we were getting into because Tommy had just got the call from Axel, and I'm like, well, either I'm making a solo record or a Soul Asylum record, and it immediately became apparent that I don't... Making solo records is just okay. Um, But that was kind of prompted by being in New Orleans and going to Kingsway, which is this beautiful studio owned by Daniel Lenoir. And the studio had just closed down, and the people that were working there were very, very friendly. One of them uh, ended up being my girlfriend, and she was the studio manager. And she said, the studio's closing down. I got a bunch of engineers here with no work. Have at it. And that's what prompted me to make a solo record. But, um, yeah, I mean, I do just sort of cut, I have, you know, just enough rudimentary skills to play a real drum track and then play a real bass track and then put down some guitars or pianos and kind of make a fully realized demo with just me playing. And then I play it for Michael and then he picks what he wants to play and then makes it sound like a real drummer and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you keep up on all like like I can barely even turn this thing on. I mean, do you keep up with like all the digital technology and that stuff or is it pretty analog or a mix? I try. I use Pro Tools and I have an engineer in New Orleans that his charge is to make everything idiot proof. And that if I can't push a button and go, it's you know, you, you, my my perception is that I have to be able to work super fast because if I have an idea, I need to be able to turn on all the... My joke was I want to walk into the studio and have a clap on. Yeah. Clap <laughs> off. So I just clap and all the microphones turn on and everything. And it's kind of like that. So there's always live mics. There's always a drum set set up. And that's kind of been the dream forever. So now I've kind of realized it. And uh, yeah, I can just get by if I'm if I'm doing something really serious. If I'm working with another artist, I'll have an engineer there. But uh, yeah, I can pretty much run it myself. But it's all hardwired. Once I have to use a patch bay, you know the thing with all the yeah yeah yeah. The, the no, that's well, you guys came thing. in here early. I couldn't even figure out how to get the headphone jack to work on my computer. <laughs> so it's yeah, like... no, I'm a bit of a techno tard. Yeah. Hey. Well. I try to impress upon people, don't worry about it, because there's plenty of geeks who will record you if <laughs> you can write God. a great song. <laughs> Thank goodness. Just worry about the soul of the song, yeah. because it's, yeah, it's really easy to get sidelined with with the tech of it. You yeah. Know, like, 
And, the, you know, you should always, I mean, the other thing I tell people is, yeah, I mean, a mixer, just having a mixer with a few things plugged into it so you can at least hear stuff right away yeah. before the computer boots. And, two, just having a handheld recorder of some kind. Oh, yeah. Because, as you know, you've lost probably a lot of great uh, ideas. Oh, yeah. Wait for a computer to start or waiting I for... I just had to borrow my... Uh manager smartphone to hum a tune yeah into it and uh it's gonna be yeah. it sounded good <laughs> i've always been you know i always carry around dictaphones and now i like these little things called zoom yep yeah and they're just little recording devices but uh yeah, yeah it's hard i'm one of those people that i'll write lyrics down on a empty candy wrapper and lose it or <laughs> you know i'm just always trying to find something to find a pen or find a recording device or find a guitar or whatever the case may be. It's kind of an ongoing thing and you never know when inspiration's <laughs> yeah. going to strike, as yeah. they say. It's, it's such, I, I, I have to ask, such a hack question, but it's like Solus Album has basically been my favorite band name forever. When I, I was like, that's so perfect. Where did it come from? Uh, well, thanks, because... <laughs> We were called Loud Fast Rules, and we wanted to change our name. And we got our Twin Tone record, our, our recording contract from Twin Tone, and we're like, "Well, now it's time. We got to change the name because we're going to put a record out." And I had written a song called Soul Asylum, and uh, I remember sitting on the bus with my guitar player, and I'd, I'd like write down my new idea for a band name on a piece of paper and hand it to him, and he open it up and look at it and go, hmm, or you make a face, or you like, oh, or you like, uh, I'm, yeah, it was a song, and the song was not that great, but the song was kind of like a song about music, and uh, yeah, that's where it came from. I don't I remember the exact moment where I was like, oh, this is a good title for a band, and it's not necessarily a good song, so let's try this, but it, it it wasn't that hard to convince the band that that was the one to go with because everything else was a joke name, yeah. you know, rug burn and all those kinds of <laughs> like silly names. Oh, yeah. What about Grave Dancers Union? Because that always kind of stuck out to me as well, too, as just a really interesting kind yeah. of group of words. Yeah, I think that's just years of hearing cliches like dancing on your grave or something like that and then being sort of, and I, I wrote some songs for unions and things like that. So I got kind of interested in that kind of angle. And yeah, I just, I just, it was partly non sequitur, but it was also partly trying to put words together that came up with sort of an abstract concept that was, it kind of made sense in a way. I think it works with the album art in a really cool it's way, too. Union of people that come and dance on people's graves or something. People always call it Grave Diggers Union, which I'm like, I don't even bother to correct them most of the time. You guys do have great, I mean, your album art is exceptional. Hang Time and uh, Clam Dip, you know, obviously. Oh, yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> the photo but shoot for Clam Dip was amazing. incredible. It really <laughs> smelled terrible. Was that really? All, it had to be cream cheese for real, right? Uh, it was a large combination of weird stuff, and there's real fish parts in there. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. So it was, and the lights are going, and Carl's just covered in this stuff. And he was a real good sport about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the Grave Dancers 
Union cover was uh, something I saw on a postcard in Amsterdam. And the new album cover, Change of Fortune, was a photo I saw in a magazine. Hang Time was a photo I saw in National Geographic, and they wouldn't let, they don't let anybody use anything from National Geographic. So they re, they tried to recreate it in the studio, and it didn't look anything like the photo that I, it was these Japanese performance artists hanging upside down, and then I turned the photo upside down and cut it in half, and I'm like, there it is. That's what I need. And it was perfect. And then they tried to recreate it, and I'm like, that's not even close. <laughs> so that it turned into this weird composite of stuff that they had sort of put a bunch of different things together. So it, it, it goes different, and it goes sideways every now and then i'll think i'll have an image and then at the last minute they'll say oh i'm sorry we couldn't get the rights right. and then i go into a panic and uh were, yeah. the, were the japanese well, artists were they buto dancers uh that's probably right yeah, yeah that's yeah. a very that's that, yeah. that, striking imagery that's yeah. good stuff were, were you this is a little bit of non sequitur too were you involved at all with with golden smog because i know they had kind of a soul asylum connection yes i was the original drummer Really? Golden Smog. Mm hmm. And uh, it was a cover band, you know, and it was just something fun for us to do. I mean, we'd always kind of, we'd always kind of be doing goofy stuff on the side and sort of putting together, that, like we put together a band called Looney Bin, and uh, it was just ridiculous. Like, you know, it was like when people were dressing up in dresses and, stuff like that i painted my whole body white and then i had this police head on with a tube that came down and blood was supposed to come out of it and go all over my body and it just squirted everybody in the front row with fake blood i had a little syringe back here and we did like a eagles cover band just and we were kind of being funny i mean we were kind of trying to just there, there was a lot of that just playing really stupid covers that were kind of half jokingly and and stuff like that so that was kind of the premise of the golden smog was to just kind of get together and play covers that we like and have fun and uh again i just i i got to a place where i just i needed to take a break and i needed to step away so i called uh Chris Mars from the replacements. And I thought that was funny that I replaced myself with a replacement. <laughs> but, uh, nice. and then he became the drummer for a while. And then Jody Stevens from big star became the drummer. So, um, it was hard to know. Cause I remember I had the record, but I remember a lot of people had to use fake names cause they were under contract yep. and Jeff Tweedy and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, then they started writing uh, original material. And by that time I was no longer, in the band but uh yeah i think when jeff came along it got really complicated for the minneapolis boys because they really had to get jody and jeff and get all these you know when we started out it was just four or five five dudes that were all hanging out together anyways all roommates and bandmates and what does it sort of feel like for you i guess to sort of like you know, start Soul Asylum, whatever, 30 years ago, or playing these bands and then have them, these things you started so small turn into like these just like cultural huge things. I mean, what's, what does that feel? Is that validating or is it overwhelming or do you not really think about it? You're always just focusing on the next thing. You mean when a band 
kind of gets recognized. Yeah, for the first I guess time. just like something you start. I, I'm always curious, just something you start for fun. Like I'm sure when you started Soul Asylum, you weren't like mm-hmm. this is going to be this huge thing, and that kind of propelled like your sort of whole trajectory. I guess. Yeah, you do. You get little tiny nudges along the way. You know, when, when I when Bob Mould asked me if he could produce our first record, I said. What what's a producer? I mean, I had no idea, you know. But again, you know, he was very encouraging, and so when we got signed to Twin Tone, it was like that was my dream. That was as far as I thought it was ever going to go because I was a huge fan of these local bands that were on Twin Tone. I'm like, I I got a record deal with Twin Tone. This this is it. I made it. You know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just tiny little increments and. I'm always happy for people when they when they get their due or get recognized or whatever it is. And that was really a special time, I think, when bands like the Butthole Surfers and the Meat Puppets were getting contracts with major labels. It felt like they had all paid their dues and put in so much. I mean, it's all that traveling and all that playing for hardly anything and sleeping on floors and sleeping in vans. You know, you're you're just barely keeping your head above water. So it's nice to see anybody go get a recording budget and be able to pay off some of their debt and things like that. Yeah, it seems like you guys definitely more than, more than a lot of any of those other bands. You you had a lot of support from the bands, like the Replacements, mm-hmm. Bob Mould. Like they were looking out for you guys. Is that the way it was? I mean, this way, well, in was, retrospect, from an outsider. Was, it was very, you know, nationwide. I mean, there was a network of bands that, you know, we were all sleeping on each other's couches right. and all playing at the same crappy clubs and dealing with the same kind of do-it-yourself mentality that was pretty rampant as far as, well, here's the SST bands in California and the Discord bands and... DC and the touch and go bands in the Wisconsin area and this, that, and the other thing there, not to associate these bands by label, but, um, you kind of could do that though, then. I mean, that was, there was regional a real for tribal, sure. Yeah. Really tribal, you know, but like, that's probably a good word. It was <laughs> fairly tribal and, uh, yeah. And you'd see, You'd see dudes in bands that you had all their records and they were all, everyone was on independent labels and you kind of know them from their music before you get to know them maybe, or maybe it's the other way around, I don't know. Like you play a bunch of gigs with some band and then they put their first record out and you're excited for them and yeah, it was very, uh, people just sort of, supporting each other it was a very sort of supportive system and yeah you know who's could took us out on tour and the replacements had a manager named pete jesperson who signed us to twin tone and we often went out with them and uh yeah it was it was fun <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i think that because it seems like those other some of the other big players from that town there was more of a rivalry. Wasn't there like a Husker replacements rivalry sort of going on? I think that maybe that's just that a common <laughs> sort of thing that people like to think that there's a beef or a contest that's happening. I mean, it may have been 
more like a funny or fun right. thing where it's just kind of dudes teasing each other or just kind of um you know being super sarcastic about everything i mean there was a lot of uh irreverence and trash talking going on okay. in, in the punk rock days that really was now i mean i think really they were more i was more brothers in arms than that and yeah, I, I recently when Carl died, we played a. Everybody came out to play this benefit. Well, before he died, when he was trying to get through his treatments, and and Westerberg and Bob Mold were making, still making jokes with each other, but they they just seem to have this age old mutual respect for each other that will probably never go away. All right. Could you tell that I was, I mean, I got in some replacements questions. I really wanted to ask more, but I figured it was just too disrespectful. Yeah. No, I get it. Next time. We'll do it next time. Um, or we'll just get a replacement in here. Or we'll get a replacement. Yeah. my fr- You know, our friend Rios Brian Diaz was a, a uh, Tommy Stinson bass tech. So I'm hoping maybe, Brian, if you're listening, <laughs> make that happen. Uh Solsheim have a new album out called Change of Fortune. You can check that out. Um, in November, they're playing a couple shows at Disneyland, which is a real bummer because the United Nations is going to be in that area in October. Actually, <laughs> November out. 2nd. We're playing could like October close, 29th. Yeah, all you got to do is hang a couple days extra. I could hang. The, last time we were there, we missed three sets in one day by Smash Mouth. I would much <laughs> rather see Soul Asylum. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, November 2nd and 3rd, you can catch them at Disneyland. I might be there. And then they're heading over to Japan where I don't, they strike me as the kind of band where like probably people in Japan fucking love them. They will. I, I, I bet they do just fine in yeah. Japan. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, they might be playing a song over there called Runaway Bullet Train. <laughs> um, anyways, if you like these kind of jokes, you can donate to the podcast. To get us to stop. Yeah, you can't actually get us to pay you. <laughs> Although maybe we should. But yeah, goingofftrack.com if you want to donate. Um, help pay for our server costs. Or if you don't want to do that, that's cool. Uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Give us a good rating. Tweet at us. Tell your friends. Um, yeah, anything else, Brad? Anything else going on with you? No, you know. Like I said, wrapping up the summertime. Wrapping up the summertime. Uh yeah, I'm working on some cool stuff that you can hear about later. And yeah, United Nations will be playing uh, Gainesville Fest if you find yourself down there this Halloween. Do it. We're playing with Planes Mistaken for Stars, uh, 12-Hour Turn, Torch, a lot of cool bands. So yeah, until then, see, until then, <laughs> until next week, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyways, we'll have another podcast next Wednesday with someone cool. Uh, that Right? Yeah, I hope so. Okay. Uh, I won't see you either way, probably. Okay. Uh, I'm going to end. I don't know why I'm so bad at ending this. We've done so many of them. Uh, We'll be back next week. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.